How is everybody? Okay, if we're honest, how many of you meant to come to the nine, but you overslept? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Last night was rough. I woke up this morning, and I'm like, no, you know, but uh, anyways. Okay, two quick stories. One is uh, serious and really important, and one is just me confessing, you know, how terrible of a person I am, but we'll get to that one in a second. Um, the first one was really neat. Last night before the five o'clock service, I was coming in, I was in the foyer, and there was a, a lady that stopped me, and she said, hey, um, last week after you got done talking about the Holy Spirit, I went up to the front to get prayed for, and she didn't tell me who prayed for her. She says, uh, someone prayed for me, and the prayer was for my brother who had had a surgery, and they had messed something up in the surgery, and they paralyzed him from the neck down in the surgery, right? So she went up there to get prayer for her brother, who you know, obviously couldn't be here. He's in the hospital. And um, so she goes, I have a video to show you. And I was like, okay. So she turned around her phone, and she clicked play, and it's a video of her brother up on these poles walking using all four appendages. And uh, he's in physical therapy right now. And that happened after she was prayed for last week. And um, I get a kick out of people and they're just like, ah, oh, God doesn't do that stuff anymore. Okay. Um, but we talked about the gifts of the Spirit last week a little bit. Um, we talked about the Spirit because Jesus talks about the Spirit. And one of those gifts is the gift of healing. And uh, these things, still, he's still the great physician, right? That hasn't changed. He's still that. So we need to celebrate those things, talk about those things. That's very, very important for us. Um, this is not very important, but I'm just going to get something off my chest. So not very often my wife will go out of town and she takes our kids, right? And at first I'm like, this is really awesome. I'm going to work on my old car and I'm going to like watch movies that she normally wouldn't watch with me and eat food that she tells me not to eat. And, and it's going to be great, right? And um, she did that a couple of years ago. She went to Minneapolis, and she took my, my oldest, and my youngest wasn't born yet. And I remember <laughs> I watched that movie, Lovely Bones, when she was gone, which is not a good movie for a dad to watch when your family's gone. It's about a girl that gets murdered, right? And, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm crying, and, and I call her up, and I'm like, I love you. And so, so Friday night, uh, <laughs> Friday night, it hit me. I'm sitting on my couch at 11 o'clock at night. I'm watching an old movie from the 80s, right? And I'm eating French vanilla ice cream smothered in Hershey syrup. And my dog is like past it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Amen. Uh, my dog is like passed out on me and her tongue's hanging out. And I'm sitting there and, and then like mid-bite, I'm like, my God, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, like, how did it come to this? And, and it hit me that I'm utterly lost without her, right? <laughs> so, uh, anyways, that's, that's it, right? That's, that's the story. The confession is, is that um, when we talk about self-control today, I'm still lacking that on some levels. So, that's it. All right, if it's your first time here, um, I'm not a prideful man, obviously, right? So, here we go. So, last week we talked in chapter 14. We were in the book of John, chapter 14. And we talked about the Holy Spirit. Again, why? Because Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and that's where we happen to be at that moment. And what we asked ourselves is, is there a component of God that we kind of neglect, right? Because it's uncomfortable, maybe it's strange to some of us, maybe we're ignorant about these things, so we kind of neglect a portion of God, right? The Holy Spirit. So this week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to end with this thought that we must not grow tired in doing good. The reason why the Bible says this, we'll get to this at the end, is because it is easy to grow tired of doing the right thing, okay? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to do all of chapter 15, 
okay? It's a very, very famous chapter of the Gospel of John. You should have a notes handout in front of you. Um, should have everything in front, in, in front of you. We'll be in chapter 15. Uh, it's the fourth book of the New Testament. If you have your Bible, if you don't have notes or a Bible, if you have a smartphone, if you get on the version app, the Bible app, click on the bottom right, then click on events. Our church will pop up. It's even in Spanish. And uh, you can see everything on there, all the scripture, all the notes, everything. Very, very convenient, okay, for you to follow along. So uh, I'm going to jump into this. I'm going to pray before we get into this. Let me kind of catch you up real quick before I dive into the Scripture. If you haven't been here, where we are in the story is in chapter 14, we come to the conclusion of the Last Supper, right? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus in here, you're familiar with the Last Supper. So the Last Supper has just wrapped up. Jesus and 11 of the 12, one of the 12 left, he's going to go deceive Jesus, Judas, right? But 11 of the 12, they get up from the table, They leave their rented apartment building that they're in in Jerusalem. They are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where they're going to continue to talk and they're going to pray with each other until Jesus is arrested. And that's where we kind of get to the climax of our story, if our will, the crucifixion starts to take place. But at this moment, imagine Jesus walking with 11 guys down the road at night on the way to a garden so they can sit and pray and talk some more, okay? That's the setting for chapter 15, all right? So let me pray. We'll dive into this, and uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Father God, I love you. I thank you, Lord. I am in such a flawed vessel, God, and your word is so perfect, and I pray, God, that you have grace to me as I teach it. I pray that you give me the right words. I pray that you give me the right temperament, God, and Lord, let the truth just be made known today. Father, we pray that you open up our ears and our eyes, help us to receive what we hear, Help us to the best of our abilities comprehend it and understand it. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's not a Christian, I pray that you just, something in this message provokes some thought or or brings up some curiosity, God, that they will continue to dig deeper. And Lord Jesus, we pray for every single church in our community. We pray for every nonprofit. We pray for all our homeless brothers and sisters, God, who have to sleep out in these cold elements, God, that you protect them and keep them safe and, and provide for them, Lord. And we just thank you so much, God. You're so good to us, Lord. Bless us today. Keep your hand on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 15, fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. This is gonna be Jesus speaking, okay? He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into a fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be given for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, in our day and age, right, unless you're living in like Arrington, you're not going to be using the analogy of vineyards a lot, right? It's just not something we talk about. A lot of us haven't been in vineyards. That kind of culture is just not familiar to us. 
In Jesus' time, it would have been extremely familiar. Agriculture was much more a part of most people's modern day. The analogy of vineyards has been used a gazillion times in the Old Testament and many times in the New Testament. So this terminology would have been very, very familiar and comfortable with the disciples, okay? So what it is, is it's an analogy. So it's going to be talking about a vine and the branches that come off the vine. The vine is Jesus. The branches are people that are connected, or in some cases disconnected, from Jesus. Now, there's three type of branches that he talks about. It's pretty simple stuff. There's branches that produce no fruit, branches that produce a little bit of fruit, and branches that produce a lot. And he says the branches that don't produce any fruit are cut off, they're removed, but the ones that do produce fruit He prunes those, he takes care of them, and they produce more, right? Simple stuff. So the fruit that we are to produce as Christians, as branches from the vine, right? The fruit that we are to produce is the fruit of the Spirit. That was your homework last week. No, everyone read that, right? So you already know what I'm talking about, but we'll get to it a little bit later just in case, right? So not only are we to produce the fruit of the Spirit, But we are also to go out to spread the gospel. And so the other part of that fruit is we are to grow the kingdom of God. We're to go out, reach out to other people, and bring them in the family of God, okay? So the disciples were not being cut. They were producing fruit, so they were being pruned. In verse 3, says that his disciples had been clean, they'd been saved, if you will, because they accepted the word from Christ. And this indicates that Jesus wasn't worried about their salvation, He was shaping them up to be as productive as possible. Now, here's the thing, and I'm not going to get into the theological potholes here, like can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? Listen, if you're striving to please God and produce fruit for His kingdom, you don't need to worry about your salvation. It's kind of like if you're treating your wife right, if your marriage is healthy, you don't need to throw out the D word, right? Divorce isn't in the mix, right? So our point is to do as best as we can to please our mate, right? And if we're doing that, we don't have to worry about if we have to lose our salvation or not. It's not something that has to be brought up. So he says, remain in me and make sure that I'm in you. Now, that word remain is the same as abide. Some of your translations may actually say abide. That's a very churchy word. There's nothing wrong with that word, but it's very churchy. And we say, oh, just abide in him. Let's abide in him. And sometimes we don't really know what that means, but we say it. What it is, is this. It is a constant and effortless resting in God, right? Making sure you're hanging out. He is the thing you lean on. He is your strong tower. He is your source of strength. And to make sure that we abide in Him, we must trust Him. We must obey Him. We must live in accordance to His Word. We must love Him in such a way that it produces the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. These are the things that are supposed to come from us. These are the fruit that we produce. Now, here's the thing. We are unable to produce that fruit unless we are connected to the vine. You don't just walk up in a branch in your yard and you're just like, there's beautiful stuff growing on this withered branch. That just doesn't happen. It has to be connected to the tree. It has to be connected to the vine. So unless we're connected to Christ, we cannot display this fruit. It just doesn't happen, right? We may get lucky and display one or two, but we're not going to display the whole package unless we are connected to Christ. So those are the ones who remain in the vine, but Jesus also talks about ones that do not remain in him. Now, this can mean a couple of different things, and this is one of those places where maybe we can agree to disagree on some stuff. This isn't a major, this is more of a minor thing, right? 
And so the branches that are cut off, removed, and as Jesus says, burned in a fire, that can mean one of three things. The first thing it can mean is it can mean that these are people who were saved, but then lost their salvation, right? They were saved, and now they're not saved. The second option is someone who is still a Christian, they're still saved, right? But maybe they don't receive the same amount of rewards in heaven as maybe some other people do who are more productive, right? I think number two is probably the least strongest argument in this, right? The third option, where I tend to land, and if you land somewhere else, that's fine. The third option is, these could be people who claim to be Christians, profess to be Christians, but genuinely do not have a relationship with God. And therefore, they will eventually be judged by God. Now again, the point of this is not to spark debate. I think Christianity wastes too much time arguing with each other over minor things. Can we lose our salvation? Can we not? Here's the thing. If you're walking towards Jesus, it's kind of a moot point, right? It's kind of a moot point. So the thing is not to spark debate, but it's to encourage each other. If we love Jesus, we want to produce as much for the kingdom as humanly possible, right? We want to bear as much fruit as humanly possible. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. So how do we know if we're where we need to be? How do we know if we're remaining, abiding, hanging out in the vine? How do we know that? Well, we remain in Christ through prayer and through reading the Word of God. And if we pray and if we are obedient to the Word of God, we prove to be disciples of Christ. James said it this way, right? James said, we proclaim our faith not simply by a declaration, but by a lifestyle, right? It's not that we just say we're Christians, we act like Christ. We display the fruit of Christ, we act like he wants us to ask. So act. So this is how we glorify God, not simply by our words, though our words are important, but we glorify God by how we act, our lifestyles, our actions, okay? Now listen, before I get into this next part, notice the word used over and over and over again in this next part is love. It says, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 11 times, okay? And then when we get to the part after that, notice the contrast that we're going to see. Okay, here we go. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Look how many times that word love comes up, right? I think, again, it's 10 or 11 times that it pops up right there. This may be one of the clearest and most brilliant passages on love in all the Gospels, right? The first the Father loves, then the Son right, reflects that love, and then we are to remain in that love. And to remain in that love requires obedience from us. Jesus says, just like I did everything my father told me to do, keep my commands, and you will remain in my love. That's what Jesus says. And when we remain in Christ's love, 
That brings us joy. Now, joy and happiness are different things. Jesus says, this is the kind of joy that makes you complete. The world tells us that we need to be happy. I just wanna be happy, we all need to be happy. Now, the problem with happiness versus contentment is happiness is contingent on circumstances. And our circumstances are not always going to be what we want them to be. So happiness can be fleeting. There's a difference with joy and contentment. Contentment is not contingent on what happens around me. It's something that is much deeper than happiness. It's a deeper emotion. So we receive more than happiness from Christ. We receive a confidence, a contentment, a complete joy because we start to understand who we are in Him. We start to understand our identity. And when we start to understand that our value, our identity, doesn't come from our stuff, it doesn't come from our spouse or our children, it doesn't come from my job or how much money I make. When we realize that our, our value, our identity comes from the Creator Himself, we start to treat ourselves differently. We have a little bit more of a healthy pride in ourselves. We stand up a little bit straighter. We take care of ourselves a little bit better when we understand that we're made in the image of God, His greatest creation. Not only do we treat ourselves differently when we understand our identity, we treat each other differently. When I also understand that you are made in the image of God and you are the greatest thing He's ever done, when I understand how God looks at you, I treat you with more respect. I don't disrespect you. I don't talk condescendingly to you. I don't put you down or make you feel small or make you feel insignificant because I understand your value better when I understand who I am, okay? And that's what Christ gives us. So he says, love one another as I've loved you. Now we're told to love other people by the standard that Jesus sets for us. And the standard is this, it's a high standard. Jesus says, no one has greater love than this that they would lay down their life for their friends. Now, here's the thing. If you ever hear people say, man, it's just me and Jesus, that's all I need. Well, that's not biblical. If you go back into the book of Genesis, the only time in the creation story where God stepped back and said, this isn't good, is when mankind was alone. He steps back and he says, they need someone because we're built to be communal. That's how God has designed us. God is communal, Father, Son, Spirit, right? He's perfect community within himself. We were created in his image, therefore we are created to be communal. And sometimes Christians get so busy loving God that they forget to love people too. But one of the ways we show God that we love Him is we love people. We treat His creation with respect and honor, and we love other people. The Bible says to outdo each other with honor. We don't do a very good job with that, but we're to outdo each other by treating people better than what we even treat ourselves, right? So here's the thing. Jesus kind of takes it up a notch. He says, I used to call you servants, and now I call you friends. Not only does God love us, He actually likes us. <laughs> now, this is funny because, like, as Christians, we're told to love everyone, right? I, I, can, I can genuinely say I love all people. I do. I love all people. I don't like all people, but I love all people, right? I love all of you. I like all of you. It's the nine o'clock people that, you know, I struggle with. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, I'm just joking. That's a joke. That's a bad joke. I told the nine o'clock it was the Saturday people, so, you know. And I might have told the nine it was you guys. Anyway, so uh, there's some people that, that I love them, um, but we don't always like people. And that's okay. We don't have to like everyone. We have to love everyone. But Jesus elevates our relationship. And he says, you're not just servants. I've let you in on all the information that my father has given me. You're my friends, right? We've taken this up a notch. Here's the thing, though. We need to be careful with that. 
We live in a day and age, and I'm not talking about non-believers. Listen, we can't hold people that don't believe in Jesus to the standard of Jesus if they're ignorant to it, right? We can't do that. But for those of us who know who Jesus is, we live in a day and age where Christians have lost a great deal of reverency for God, right? Jesus is just my homeboy. He's my bro. He's not your bro. He's not your homeboy. He spoke the universe into existence, right? You're not on the equal playing field with God, right? You're not eye to eye with him. Now listen, when Jesus calls us friends, that's not necessarily a reciprocal thing. We still refer to him as Lord and Master, right? Now, Solomon said that the beginning of all wisdom is a proper fear of God, a respect, right? Now listen, I know that God's our dad. I know he hugs us. He embraced us. He loves us. He loves to hear about our day. He loves, as it says in Genesis, to walk around with us in the cool of the morning like he did with Adam. He loves that. But there is also this proper respect and reverency that we must have for the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we've lost a great deal of that. Another thing Jesus does is he looks at his disciples and he goes, hey, I chose you. You didn't choose me. And he reminded the disciples that he not only chose them, he chose their mission. I chose you and I've chosen you to produce a lot of fruit, to go do a lot of great things. And we often say that we found God and that's not necessarily it's not necessarily a wrong thing. I tell people I found Christ in 2002. That's when I became a Christian. But it's not like Jesus is like hiding around behind trees being like peekaboo and we're like, oh, got you, Jesus. That's not really how Jesus operates. <laughs> That's a horrible analogy, right? We're the lost sheep. He's the shepherd. He's the one that runs after us and pursues us. Now, here's the thing though about that though. Though God chooses us, that doesn't eliminate our responsibility to say yes. He chooses us, he finds us, but we have to be responsible enough to follow him, to be productive with our time and to love other people. We're not skirted all responsibility, though he is the one that pursues us, okay? Now listen, we said love about 6,000 times in that last passage. Look at how it switches gears right here, right? If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Look at three times in the first sentence. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not sin. They would, uh, they would have not sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sin. Now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. But this has happened so that the statement written in the scripture may be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Listen, you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Now here, we, 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 we see a dramatic shift in this conversation, right? Jesus warns his disciples that if they are fully devoted to him, there will be certain people, some people will hate them. But he clarifies, he goes, guys, it's not you, it's me. 
It's the fact that I will be inside you. That's why they will hate you. Now look, there's a positive spin to this. And let me show you guys something that's very, very important. When we follow the Word of God, and the reason why I teach the way I do in this church is we want to be completely dependent on the Word of God. Now what's neat about that is this. There's a liberation when we depend on the Word of God. Let me give you an example. If people come up to me and they say, Corey, what is your opinion of premarital sex? I respond, my opinion is irrelevant. My thoughts are flawed. I'm a broken man. You don't want to follow my ways, my opinions. Let's see what the Word of God says. And if we are Christians, we go by that standard. And what happens is when people bring up hot button issues like, uh, I don't know, abortion or same-sex marriage or sex outside of marriage or whatever the topics are that people come, and they bring them to you and they say, what is your opinion? Say, you don't want my opinion. Let's go to the opinion of God. And what that does is it takes the weight and the pressure of our faith off of us and it puts it on Jesus, which is totally fine because he can handle it. So that's what we do. We defer to the word. This is our anchor. This is our barometer. You don't want to know what I think. Let's, lo- let's learn what this thinks, right? And quite frankly, I don't mean this mean. If you tell me your opinion on things and this word doesn't confirm it, I really don't care, right? And you should do the same with me. If I give you my opinion and it doesn't line up with the word of God, you probably shouldn't listen to me, all right? So the truth is, is that we are different when we're in Christ. When we accept Christ, we're in the world, but we're no longer of the world. Therefore, we're never going to be accepted as a whole by this culture. Christianity never has been, ever, since its inception. I know Chance the Rapper won a Grammy and everyone's like, yeah, we got our three minutes. The rest of that show is completely not glorifying God, right? We had our three minutes on the big stage in front of the world and that's kind of all we got. But the Christian faith and its ideals will never predominantly be the voice of our culture. It's just not going to happen as hard as we try. And the present tense of the word hates, when John says they hate you, that's in the present tense, this means that this is an expectant part of the Christian lifestyle. We're shocked when people don't like us because of our ideas. And Jesus says multiple times, this is going to happen. So here's what we do. We love with the hope of people coming to Christ, but we also remember that not everyone's going to accept it. Jesus said in Luke, I think it's Luke chapter eight, he says, you're gonna go into certain cities, you're gonna proclaim the gospel, they're gonna say, no. Jesus says, knock the dust off your feet and go to another town. Go to where people will listen to you, where they will receive this, okay? And when we encounter people that hate us or hate the God that we serve, We need to step back and we still need to have compassion for those who even hate Christ in us because that hatred comes from a place of ignorance. And I don't mean that derogatory towards them. They don't know Christ yet, right? So when Jesus was on the cross, they're nailing him to it. He looks up to the Father and he says, God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If they understood what they were doing, they wouldn't do this. And so what we tend to do is we tend to hold non-believers to a standard that they shouldn't be held to yet. If one doesn't know the teachings of Jesus, I can't hold them to the standards of the teachings of Jesus. I can't ask them to respond like Christ if they don't follow Christ. So our mission is to present the truth to people, which is Jesus Christ, and if they accept that, it will set them free, and then we can hold them to that standard. We tend to get it backwards, right? We tend as Christians to say we shouldn't hang out with people different from us. Now listen, the Bible says you should hang out with people different from you that believe differently from you. And the reason why is because we are the light for them to hear the truth. That doesn't mean we always go where they go and do what they do and condone what they do. That's not what it says. 
But the, the, the people that Paul says you need to be careful about aren't the non-believers. He says you need to be careful about the ones who know the truth but live like they don't. Paul says you shouldn't even eat dinner with those folks. That's what it says in the Bible. I think it's 1 Corinthians if I'm wrong. And so those are the people that we need to be very cautious of. Now, the reason why some people reject the truth, though, is because sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it cuts. Sometimes it convicts. And many reject truth and reject the teachings of the Word because it reveals weaknesses in us. It reveals pride in us. It reveals sin in us, and it convicts us. And quite frankly, none of us like that feeling, right? I don't know about you. God, thank you so much for this conviction, right? None of us like that. Because we're, we're naturally, we hate submission. We naturally hate authority. We hate to acknowledge that we're not always correct. And so some people turn away. I've had people come to this church. Corey made me feel bad in that sermon. Did I make you feel bad or did the word of God point out a deficiency in your life? Right? My goal is not to make everyone feel like crap up here. That's not what I'm trying to do. Our goal is to turn the spotlight of God on our lives, figure out what's broken so it can be fixed. And sometimes that is painful, but it's part of the process and it's for our good. You guys are awake out there, right? So when we reject truth, when we reject it, when we see the spotlight on us, when we say, no, 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 I don't want that. When we reject the truth, we bring on guilt and shame and the consequences of sin. And here's the odd thing. We often pray for the relief of conviction, for the relief of guilt. You hear that in churches all the time. We're going to pray against guilt and shame. You know what that's like? That's like you're about to put your hand on a hot stove and saying, God, please remove the pain of this. When you should be praying that God gives you enough wits and brains about you to not touch the stove. The problem isn't the heat of the stove. The problem is that I keep putting my hand on it. And so if we would pray for God to eradicate the sin from our lives, to forgive the sin in our lives, the shame and the guilt will naturally go with it. That's a symptom of a much greater sickness. So do I want you to feel shameful and guilty all the time? Of course, I'm, of course I don't want you to do that. But guilt and shame can be a great mechanism to bring us to repentance. I don't want to feel this way, so if I repent for my sin, God will take all this away from me. Our problem is this, though. We don't want to own our bad decisions. Why? Because we're a culture of victims. It's everyone else's fault except for mine, right? My economic situation is the president's fault. This, this situation is my parents' fault. The reason why I don't have this good relationship is because my dad did this or whatever excuses we use. Now, guys, I'm not trying to be insensitive to what's happened around you, but at the end of the day, my decisions are mine. They're mine. And your decisions are yours. And so we have to own those things, give those over to the Father in humility, and He will help us with those things. But the first step... All the rest of you who've recovered with me through substance abuse, the first step is admitting that you're an alcoholic, right? The first step is admitting that you have a problem. And when we're honest about our deficiencies, then the Lord can start working on those things, right? So some people have seen the truth and rejected the truth. Now, once one has been presented with the truth and they reject it, that's when we bring condemnation on ourselves. Jesus didn't bring condemnation. We bring it on ourselves. Jesus came to take that condemnation off of us. Listen, this is very important. That's why it's highlighted, right? Judgment comes when ignorance is replaced with a conscious rejection. That's when condemnation comes. Now we've seen the truth. 
we reject the truth, and whatever comes with that now we have to accept because we have rejected the truth, the condemnation, the shame, the guilt, the consequences. Now listen, every single person that has ever lived will be given some degree of truth about God. Even in the most remote places in the world, it says in Romans 1.20, if they walk outside of their hut in the most remote places of the world and they see the sun, they see the sky, they see the environment around them, there should be something that is sparked up in them that says there's something greater than me. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and claim to know exactly how Jesus is going to judge all of us, but I know that He is fair and He will judge us based on the amount of information we've received and how we've either accepted that or rejected that, okay? God will judge us fairly. Now, Jesus says something interesting. He says, some people are going to hate me for no reason. And he takes a couple of scriptures from Psalms and he kind of mashes them up a little bit. And what this exposes is it exposes that we have a humility problem and a submission problem. When we believe that we can define right and wrong, we will hate anyone who tells us that we can't. We live in what's a relativistic world and a pluralistic world. Relativistic means that we believe that truth is relative to the individual. I believe this ceiling is hot pink and you have no right to tell me that it's not. That's the world we live in right now. It is relative to me that this is hot pink, right? And so no one can argue with that. And if you argue with me, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're closed-minded, this ceiling is pink. And so we are a relativistic society. We are also a pluralistic society, which means that there are multiple pathways to the ceiling, not just up. You can go right and left, down, you can go diagonal, whatever you want, right? It all goes to the same ceiling. And we're not using our brains that there's only one pathway to the ceiling, and that is up. So we are a relativistic society, and we are a pluralistic society. And anyone who argues that is closed-minded, and you're ignorant, and all these other things that people call us, right? The irony is this, is that everything in this Bible that people claim to be closed-minded and completely the antithesis to how the world thinks, if we were to follow these principles, they work, I'm not even talking about with heaven and hell. If we were to follow the principles of the Bible on marriage, we would never have divorce. If every woman respected their husband the way they should, and if every man loved their wife like Christ loves the church, no one would ever split up. If we followed the Bible's uh, um, uh, roadmap for sexuality and sex, there'd be no STDs in one generation. They'd all go away because you'd be with one man, one woman forever, and there wouldn't be the spreading of these diseases. If we followed economics from the Bible, that the debtor is slave to the lender, we wouldn't be $19 trillion in the hole right now. <laughs> if we were to follow the Bible's principles, they work. And it's ironic that we hate these words, not you and I, but some people, when these words, if they were to be followed, would make our lives much better. Jesus has our best interests in mind, and for some reason we hate Him because He exposes the things in us that we don't want to change. We have a humility problem, a submission problem. And it's good we're not alone in this, right? Listen, we are not enemies of people who believe differently than us. They are not our enemies. In fact, we should be showing people that believe differently from us extreme love and extreme grace. But listen, if we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of responding well to people who treat us poorly. Some of you men in here, right? Remember your temperament before you had the Holy Spirit? Women in here, remember your attitude before you had the Holy Spirit? Remember after God got a hold of you, you respond differently, right? 
You respond differently when people make you mad or push your buttons. And when we respond well to people that don't treat us well, not only do we honor God, but we may change somebody's heart. You ever had someone that's been super mean to you and you just return it with like genuine kindness and it just really touches their heart and it flips them around, right? That's what happens when we respond well. We can only do that with the Holy Spirit. So God has given us this huge job and we're in an extremely difficult environment. Just as Christ displays the heart of God, he says, you're gonna testify too, right? In other words, all of us in this room, if we are followers of Jesus, Jesus has commissioned us to be the visible representation of the invisible God. <laughs> if anyone is ever going to see God before he comes back, it's gonna be through me. It's gonna be through you. And this should take away any carelessness or casualness about how important it is that we stay connected to the Holy Spirit. We have a mission, and the mission is to show God's love to a confused and broken world. That is our mission. And here's the thing about our mission. We cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot do it by ourselves. I don't care who you are in this life, we will buckle under the weight of this life if we do not have the Holy Spirit with us. Well, Corey, I've known people who've made millions of dollars who did not believe in God. Let's look at their personal life. Let's look at their married life. Let's look at what they do on their free time. Let's look at how they spend their money. Let's take a look at them. Let's really get into what the Bible says is important about a person, and let's hold them to that standard. Look at just how the mighty have fallen in our culture, right? People that we've put all this stock into and they live these kinds of lives that we would all like to live, right? And then one of them blows their brains out and we're in shock, but they had all this money. They were beautiful, they were famous. But without the Holy Spirit, all of us crack, right? All of us buckle, we cannot sustain it. Not only if we don't have the Holy Spirit, but listen, if we are not properly connected to the vine every day, Christians, we're talking about Christians, right? If we are not properly connected to the vine, we cannot be the parents we need to be. We cannot be the friends we need to be. We cannot be the neighbors we need to be. That's to the people we love. Let alone can we be what we need to be to the people that hate us. If we're not constantly connected to the vine, guys, Jesus promises it so many times. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And if we're not closely connected to that, how in the world are we going to respond well if we're not connected to the source, if we're not connected to the Holy Spirit and if He's not guiding us? Here's the other thing, guys. We must stay connected to the vine because ultimately it's not just about you. It is much bigger than you. Our relationship with God affects many, many more people than just ourselves. If you have kids in here, you better be connected to the Holy Spirit because they're watching you, they're listening to you, they're paying attention to what you're doing and how you're living. If you're married in here, if you have influence, everyone has some level of influence, and if they know you're a Christian, they're watching you, and your relationship with God trickles and it ripples away from you and it affects a lot of people. So our relationship with God affects more than probably you'll ever know until we get to heaven. And so we are called by Christ to be the beacon of light to the community. Listen, Jesus is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the community. That's why in Hebrews it says, do not forsake this. 
People can talk all day long about the faults of the church, and there are faults, of course there are, but if it wasn't for the church, if it wasn't for the church, there would be no hope for the community. The church is the beacon of light for the community. We are called to, beacon, to be the beacon of light for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors, for the lost. And again, if the world is going to see Jesus before he comes back, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Revelation, I've taught it a couple of times, but anyways, when he comes back the second time, it's too late. When we see him part in the eastern sky, we're like, hey, do you know Jesus? Blah, blah, blah. Give him a quick rundown of the gospel. It's too late at that time. So if people are going to see Christ before it's too late, do you know who they're going to see it through? You. <laughs> Me. Us. We are the ambassadors. We are what we can see. The Bible even says, how can you worship a God that you don't see if you don't even love the people that you can see. That's our responsibility. We are to be the light, the salt. Paul one time wrote this to a church, church in Galatia, right? Now, we always talk about sometimes, man, we're living in the worst times. It's the worst times ever. So when Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia, right, a Roman-run world at the time, in a time where 50,000 people would pack out the Colosseum and they would watch people be slaughtered, slaughtered, right? In a time like that, we're not living in the most brutal, crazy times that's ever existed in humanity, right? It's been much worse. And it was much worse in Paul's day. And this is what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, we must not get tired of doing good. Why is that in the Bible? Because it's easy to grow tired of doing good. And Paul said, you can't. You can't grow tired of doing good. He says, we will reap at the proper time if, if, if we don't give up. We cannot grow tired of doing good. There will be fruit that comes from this if we just don't give up. And Paul says, as we have the opportunity, we must work for the good of all. Now listen, especially for those other Christians, right? We're especially to work for other believers, brothers and sisters. But he says, as we have the opportunity, which you do every single day when you leave your home, as we have the opportunity, we are to work for the good of all people. And so when it comes to working out the good for all people, we can't give up. Corey, it's hard. Can't give up. They make fun of me. Don't give up. I'm tired. Keep pushing forward. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let me tell you a story. And I might get some of my dates wrong. My parents uh, got divorced, I think it was 91 or 92. I was 11, 12 years old, maybe 11 when it started, 12 when everything was kind of done and finalized. When my parents got divorced, we were living in Nashville at the time. My father was going to stay in the house in Nashville. My mother moved to St. Louis. We had a home up there. She moved to St. Louis. And at the same time, my sister was going to go off to Indianapolis, right? Now, I would never give you any details, and hopefully my sister's not watching right now, but uh, my sister lived a, a, a pretty wild adolescence, pretty wild teenage years. I, you guys kind of know my past. My sister rivaled me. You know, um, My father one time had to send a private investigator after her to find out where she was, and she had some, some, some pretty wild years, my sister. But when she was about 17 years old, roughly, she's five years older than me, when she was about 17, she went to a Bible college in Indianapolis. Went there, 
God had really changed her life and gotten a hold of her and she'd really straightened up and devoted herself to Christ. And when I was 12 years old, she was 17, she started praying for me every single day. Every single day. She would tell me that every single day. I started smoking cigarettes when I was 12, lost my virginity when I was 14, started smoking dope when I was 13. I was a bad kid. And so my sister would pray for me every single day. She eventually met her husband in this college, Jason, who's a pastor up in Chicago. No, they pastor a church in Chicago. And when she got married, her and Jason would pray for me every day. As they got older, they started having kids and their kids, even as little babies, as little toddlers, they would make sure they take time to pray for Uncle Corey. And they would pray for me every single day. My sister prayed for me every single day for 10 years. 10 years. And towards the end of that time, she told me that when I would pray, because she was getting so desperate, I'd tried to kill myself a couple of times. I'd done all these horrible things, had gotten involved with cocaine and speed and all this other junk that I'd gotten involved in. Bad stuff, right? And my sister started praying so heavily for me and so frequently for me. She started asking God. She said, God, whatever you have to do to my brother, get his attention. If you know my testimony, if you've come to the next class, I almost died in 2002. So I used to make jokes with my sister. I'm like, hey, remember that time you used to pray for God to kill me? Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So for 10 years, she would pray this, right? And in 2002 of August, I gave my life to Christ, right? And in 2009, we started this church. Now listen, I don't, I don't, I don't mean this as a brag on me at all. Not at all. Please don't take it that way. But we have almost 3,000 people that come to this church. We sponsor people in New England. We sponsor people in Colombia. We minister to 400-something pastors through Josh in Uganda. We have people in Wales constantly. We have people globally that this church has gone on to reach. I've baptized many of you. I've done many of your weddings. I did Josh and Jenny's wedding. I did Corey and Callie's wedding. I got to do Patrick and, and, and Annie. When they got back together, they were estranged from each other, and I got to renew their vows together. And I got to do all these wonderful things and see these lives change. And that's, of course, that's not through me. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit that so much stuff has happened. If I wouldn't have become a Christian, my wife would have never gotten saved. She got saved about five months later. We wouldn't have had our kids. Do you see where I'm going? That if my sister would have gave up even seven years into it, you wouldn't sit here right now. Some of your children wouldn't be in church. Maybe your marriage would even be broken up if a woman that you've never met in Chicago had stopped praying for her brother. Do you see why we don't give up? Do you see the ripple effect that happens if one person keeps pushing forward? Do you see? We're going to start a church in Cannon County. We're going to try to start more churches after that in the future. Do you see? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been affected because one woman kept on moving forward. She did not give up. She did not give up. Listen, I know some of you are exhausted. I know some of you are beat up. I know some of you are at your wit's end. I know that because you tell me. I see it on your face. You come into my office. 
to see some of you slumped down on my couch and you're so broken and you're so beat up and you're doing your best to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Listen, for those of you in that state, I just wanna tell you, don't give up. Don't give up. There's people that you don't even know yet that will be negatively affected if you throw in the towel. Don't give up. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep praying. Keep talking. Keep reading. Keep reaching out. Keep living righteously. Keep repenting when you fall, right? Keep finding accountability. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep running the race. Keep moving forward. Guys, there will come a time when all of the stress and tension will be relieved. At the proper time, Christ will come and reward us if we just don't give up. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We serve a God that didn't give up on us. And his Holy Spirit is in us, which gives us the fortitude. It gives us the strength to continue. If we will just lean on that. If we will abide. If we will remain. If we will stay connected. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, right now, God, I pray for those who are tired. God, for the ones who keep pushing forward, Lord, and they don't know how they can do it. They don't know how they can go another day. They don't know how they can continue to hold their head up, God. They want to give in to their temptations. They want to give in to their addictions. They want to find a way to mask it or sedate it or whatever the, whatever the case may be, God. Father, I pray that you strengthen their legs so they can walk righteously. Father, I pray that you strengthen their hands and their arms so they can continue to reach out to people and love them and hug them and embrace them. I pray, God, that you bless our minds and strengthen our minds so we can think clearly, God. I pray that you strengthen our tongues so we can speak words of kindness and that it should be blessings come out of our mouth and never cursings, God. I pray that you strengthen our eyes so we can see, so we can see what you're doing and so we can see other people the way you see them. I pray, God, that you strengthen our ears that we can hear your word and that we can absorb it and that we can do it. God, bless my brothers and sisters. Let us keep moving forward, God. Strengthen us, God, and give us courage and hope until you return, Jesus. Father, and I pray that that day comes quickly, Lord. We love you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. There's communion all the way around us, guys, if you wanna help yourself to that. There'll be people up here on my left and right to pray for you. If you need that, please make yourself at home. Thank you guys so much. I love you guys. Mm -hmm.